Well, friends, good morning again. A warm welcome to St. Paul's, whether you're joining us online or in person, especially if you're new or visiting. We're delighted that you're here. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the daring kidnapping of one of the world's worst of the Holocaust's masterminds, Adolf Eichmann. During his trial in Israel, prosecutors called a string of former concentration camp prisoners as witnesses. One was a small man named Yehiel Denier, who had miraculously escaped death in Auschwitz. Denier entered the courtroom and he stared at the man in the bulletproof glass booth. The man who'd murdered Denier's friends personally executed a number of Jews and presided over the slaughter of millions more. As the eyes of the two men met, victim and murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell silent with no one being prepared for what happened next. Yehiel Denier began to shout and sob, collapsing on the floor. Was he overcome by the horrifying memories? By the evil incarnate? on Eichmann's face? No. As he later explained in a riveting interview, it was because Eichmann was not the demonic personification of evil that Denier had expected. Rather, he was an ordinary man, just like anyone else. And in that one instant, Denier came to a stunning realization that evil is part of the human condition. I was afraid about myself. Denier said, I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. We're continuing in our preaching series looking at E100, the essential 100 passages from the Bible and seeing the relevance that those ancient texts have for our daily lives right here in Toronto. And today we heard a key read for us, one of the most famous passages from the Bible, which the average person on the street could probably quote you a line or two from, the Ten Commandments. What's standing between us and being a murderer like Adolf Eichmann? Is it the Ten Commandments? Ten universal truths that we can all agree on? This morning, we're going to see that far from being universal truths, the Ten Commandments reveal for us the character of a very specific God who calls us to live in a very specific way for a specific purpose. And I'm going to use the Sixth Commandment, do not murder, to look at this, because it's the commandment we think we need to least worry about. Specific God, specific lifestyle, specific purpose. And whether you're spiritually searching or already a disciple of Jesus. Do you want this? Specific God. So far in our E100, we've seen how God has revealed God's self to the ancient Mesopotamian nomads, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that because of a famine, Jacob's descendants, now called the Israelites, well, they fled to Egypt for food. They stayed there and multiplied. And eventually, the Israelites had become slaves in Egypt, and they cried out to God for rescue. Last week, we saw Moses, one of the great figures of recorded history, enter the story of everything. And Moses was raised as an Egyptian prince, but was an Israelite by birth, 
And he has a remarkable encounter with God in a burning bush. And God reveals God's name to Moses. I am who I am, the fire that needs no fuel. So that Moses can be commissioned by God to go tell Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery. And by time we pick up the historical record today, Moses has had a titanic battle of strategy and will with Pharaoh, and he's triumphed, leading thousands of Israelites out of slavery, the Exodus. And they're now journeying through the desert to the land that God has promised them, what is roughly modern-day Israel. And on that mother of all journeys, God interacts with Moses once more, mixing it up this time, not in a burning bush, but atop a mountain, and gives Moses the law, the pathway for daily life that reflects God's hopes for our lives, with the Ten Commandments making up a central part. And here we come to the specificity of God, Listen to verse 1 of the reading from Exodus 20. Then God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, there are plenty of gods to choose from, then and now. Then you could have chosen the gods of ancient Egypt or another tribe's local weather god. And now... You could choose the God of another faith. Don't be fooled. All the faiths are not just different ways of worshiping the same thing, and other faiths will be the first one to tell you that. Or what you could do is you could choose the God of work or the God of family or wealth or the perennially popular God yourself. But the God revealed last week as I am who I am, the beginning and the end. This is not some local weather god or a psychological projection of our own deep insecurities and longings. No, this is the God who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. This is the God who acts in history, in people's daily lives around the world in a way that makes a difference. Robert Jensen, an American writer, he was asked once who God is, and this is what he said. God, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having first rescued Israel from Egypt. That's who God is. And while God can be understood philosophically as I am who I am, or God can be understood scientifically as the fire that needs no fuel, the God we're encountering today is the God who did that thing all those years ago and is the very same God working in every single one of your lives, even if you can't describe it. A specific God who calls us to a specific way of living, a specific lifestyle. Now, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not carve for yourself any idol to worship. Those take us right to the heart of the specific lifestyle that God calls us to. But before we unpack that, that line about God being a jealous God 
and visiting the sins of the parents on subsequent generations, that can just really stick in your throat. But what it means is that God will resist anything that will draw us away from love and truth. And that the natural consequences of turning away from God's loving laws through our own disastrous choices, they will absolutely mean that there are consequences for our children and our grandchildren. Can you spell climate change? The specific lifestyle that this specific God invites us to can be summed up as don't live for idols. Idols are anything or anyone, no matter how good, who takes the place of God at the center of our lives and our psyches. Idols are anything or anyone that we turn to for ultimate purpose, security, or hope. And what can be so startling is how deceptive our idols can be, how well-dressed, how well-meaning, how silently they wrap their tendrils around our hearts. No one, no one wakes up in the morning and decides that they want to be addicted to cocaine or porn. And I bet every single one of us would liquidate our bank accounts like this if we believed that our lives or our children's souls depended on it. It's obvious. But what about, what about the idol of romance? The belief that if we just have one other person who loves us, issues and all, we'll be able to make it through life fairly unscathed. We all have these idols. I am not exempt. I have a certain standard of living, the idol of comfort. I'm highly productive, the idol of work and achievement. I'm loved and respected by others, the idol of approval. And of course, the most deceptive idol of all, the one that Jesus warned us most to be on guard about, the idol of religion, of believing that if we simply obey the religious rules, all will be well with our souls. And friends, most of these are good things. Don't get me wrong. But that's how they became idols in the first place. And that's how we learn to depend on them. It was Martin Luther who pointed out that you only break the other eight commandments when you've broken the first two. Don't live for idols. For example, you'll only lie if in that moment when you're telling the lie, your reputation means more to you than God's truth. And look at how this works when it comes to the sixth commandment, do not murder. The one commandment we all want to feel good about, right? At the very beginning of this series, uh, we read from the book of Genesis, and it contains an extraordinary biblical insight that we are each made in the image of God, an idea that we take for granted because it has thankfully been so deeply woven into our Western culture. And the biblical insight is that whenever we're looking at another human being, we are looking at a cracked old master painting. It still has a grandeur about it because we've been painted in the image of God. And though it's worn and it's dirty, you can still glimpse the beauty and you want to treat it with reverence and, and you're thinking, oh, wow, I would love to see that painting be restored. 
C.S. Lewis, the great literary critic, writes this. The weight of my neighbor's glory should be laid heavily on my back. We must feel the weight of our neighbor's sacredness, of the beauty and glory that could be restored in this person. And practically what this means is that whenever I meet with anybody, I need to ask myself, has this person felt valued by me? Do they feel I took them seriously? Or do I use people? Or worse, do I use my children's activities to feel good about myself? The sixth commandment once challenges me to ask, do I give life and value to other people? Or do I suck life and value out of other people? This flies directly in the face of the idol of worshiping ourselves and putting our own priorities ahead of loving God and our neighbors. This lifestyle of not living for idols, but living for God is specific because it leads to tangible action. Thomas Watson was an English writer in the 17th century, and he said there are five ways to break the sixth commandment. Number one, killing with your hands. Most of us feel pretty good about that one. But look at this. Number two, killing with our minds, something Jesus specifically talked about. Number three, killing with the tongue or the tweet. Number four, killing by withholding help from someone who's perishing. And number five, killing by neglecting to give someone what's necessary to strengthen or preserve their life. And when we withhold from someone what they need to thrive and blossom, that is a rebuff against me, says Jesus, because they have my image on them. When we tolerate casual racism and take no action against resurgent anti-Semitism in Toronto, We've made an idol of white superiority, and that is a rebuff against me, says Jesus, because all people bear my image. It's a very specific lifestyle following a specific God who put God's image on all of humanity to feel the weight of our neighbor's glory. Murder, murder's like an oak tree, and oak trees grow from acorns. What acorn does murder start with? The idol of superiority, of arrogance. And unless we put the God who raised Jesus from the dead, having first of all brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, if that God is not front and center in our lives and not the idol of ourselves, then that murderous acorn is going to be watered in my heart. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he, Yahal Denir, a specific God, the one who led the Israelites out of slavery, a specific lifestyle, living without idols, and lastly, for a specific purpose. We didn't read it today, but in the chapter before, what he read for us in Exodus 20 was this line, chapter 19, verse 4. God speaking to Moses. 
You saw how I led the people out of Egypt, how I brought you to myself. Now, if you keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And while God certainly wants to relate to us as individuals, what God is really interested in is creating a community, a community of people who were living a distinct life, where people bear the weight of their neighbor's glory. And as you're going to read this coming week in E100, the Israelites, they eventually make it through the desert, they get into the promised land, and there they become the Jewish nation, meant to be a light to the peoples of the world, out of whom will come the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, bringing us the good news, the gospel. And it's only the gospel that has the power to crush those feelings of superiority and contempt that lurk in the darkest chambers of my mind and yours, that we are all equally in need of God's forgiveness and mercy. And it's only the gospel that strengthens us to live lives of compassion and service to others in this city, because only the gospel teaches us that we are more loved than we ever dared dream. Only the gospel is able to take a community as wonderfully diverse as St. Paul's Blur Street and knit us together around this specific God calling us to a specific life so that we can shine as a light in the heart of downtown Toronto. Do you want to be part of that? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and that you want to lead us out of slavery to idols today. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we'd be able to shine as lights in the darkness here in Toronto. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.